Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Spring 2022 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The following episode is a live recording of Rory Byrne, co-founder of Security First, building tools for the security of human rights defenders and journalists. The recording was made at the Spring 2022 Freelance Forum event held on 11th of April at Grinch Garman Campus of Technological University Dublin. You can download the Freelance Forum podcast from Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and all good podcatcher apps and on SoundCloud. Rory Byrne spoke on the topic of security for journalists and we join him as he outlines the range of experience he brings. Working on everything from um, we're war crimes investigations of the US to uh, Russian mafia, uh, narco crimes, um, corporate intelligence targeting of NGOs and journalists, um, pretty much anywhere you can think of. So uh, what I was asked to do today is give a, a kind of a quick overview really of some uh, of the resources that are available and um, you know some of the things that are out there that will help people in their work. One of the major changes that we've seen, um, certainly when I started out, is that uh, security has become a nice to have uh, as part as a freelance journalist or as a, or as a you know sort of as a as a journalist working for an organisation? It's become part of a nice to have to an essential to have. You know, you used to, years ago you'd never see people with here's my secure email address or whatever. Here's my secure uh, phone number if you want to contact me to give me tips and things like that. Um, now it's becoming more and more uh, a part of that. And one of, there's a lot of you know challenges around that for people that that that, that work in the field. So. As freelancing becomes more and more uh, popular, um, or well, as just as the industry goes that direction, you know, you have this kind of uh, division in a way where you have some organisations that are pretty good at security. If you're working with them, they'll do this, they'll do that, they'll they'll help you, um, you know, establish a structure, sort out your laptop, whatever it is. And then you have people in the field trying to do stuff. And you know, um, one of the changes that I've seen in the past two or three years is with um, kind of organisations that are commissioning, especially freelancers, have started to uh, partly put in their own structures of, of security and say, look, what have you done? But also coming to people like me sometimes and saying, look, you know, can we can we publish this? Is it safe to publish this? And so, you know, one of the hosts I have today is just to give some ideas of some of the resources out there. We're going to speed through it quite quickly. Um, but um, just to plug something that's free and it's open source and available. So when we do trainings and things like that, um, we actually built this with freelancers in mind. We wanted everyone to have an opportunity to have basically any kind of uh, information or security scenario you might think of, have it in your pocket. So we have a mobile app called Umbrella. It's free, it's, it's available. Um, it's in six, seven different languages. Um, and um, it's kind of based upon best practice in the industry and in the sector. So if you find yourself saying, okay, what did that nerd say on that Monday morning about uh, how I'm supposed to send a communications to a source or what's the best way to protect my data? Um, you can go to there and, and it's pretty much all in there. Um, and, uh, and one of the things about it, I think that's quite interesting is that sometimes we find, because a lot of our work would have been abroad, because um, thankfully we live in a relatively safe country, but one of the things that's, that, that we find a lot with it is that people will download it for one reason, they'll like say, okay, we did a digital security training, and then they find, well, they actually have a, a colleague that's been arrested or, or something like that. And so this, this app uh, that we created, um, it kind of, it, it basically, I think it's the biggest guide to security for uh, social activists, NGO worker, or journalists in the world, as far as we know. And it's, it's got kind of different levels as well. It doesn't expect you to be some kind of like super tech nerd. It's, it's, all, it's pretty simple stuff, but the, it can kind of increase as you go. 
So it's just kind of a, a reference there. Um, yeah, it's, it's available on the app stores. Even if you don't like it, give it five stars. Um, and we also kind of we customize these for organizations as well. So it's it's free. Um, other learning tools as well. So um, more free stuff. Go to our website. Uh, we have basic um, digital security trainings. So you know, uh, 15, 20 minute trainings for people. Um, again, all free. You just log in um, and you can take it. Or how do I do secure communications? How do I protect stuff on my device or whatever? And um, yeah, hopefully it's, it's useful. It's also in a couple of different languages as well. So, you know, why are we talking about um, about security for um, for freelancers and for journalists in particular? Um, I mean, I think it's all fairly clear the kind of environment that we're in in terms of civil society globally. Um, you know, the targets are or, or journalists are seen as targets themselves. Their sources are seen as targets. Um, in many countries, you know, the work of the free media is more of a risk to the threat of a regime than, you know, foreign intelligence services or whatever it is. Um, and the other thing as well is that, like, just the, the kind of global spread and democratization, for want of a better word, of surveillance tools. You know, tools that in, when I started my career, like, 05, 06, would only be the kind of preserve of, you know, US, Israel, or whatever it is, are now stuff that you can literally go to, you know, Dubai and buy for, you know, 500, a million quid or something like that. They're everywhere, you know? Um, and because of that, you know, there's kind of a, an arms race that goes on between journalists trying to do things securely, and then also, you know, um, whether it's, you know, I suppose, whether it's, um, you know, surveillance technology that's been sold elsewhere, or it's mis misuse as well. And, you know, I don't think we're immune to this in Ireland, and some of the things that we, we'll talk about here as well, um, the risks that come with it. So one of the main things around, um, around thinking about, as a, as a freelance journalist who's very busy, how do I think about, you know, the information that I have, the value to it, you know, um, you know, we, and what's that line between paranoia and not? So one of the things we kind of say is, look, you know, you have to really know when to apply the right sort of um, security at the right point. Um, and th the way you want to think about that is, you know, what is the value of this data? You know, how, how long do I need to hold it for? Um, you know, what are the extra precautions I need to take that are, are reasonable, you know what I mean? So, you know, we don't expect that, like, people are going to go out and all of a sudden be buying new laptops and all this kind of stuff. But understanding, you know, what is the risk here? If you're doing a, um, and actually this comes to someone I'm going to talk about in a second, but if you're doing a, um, because of the Snowden effect, you know, we had a lot of people, especially journalists, say, I'm, I do all this crazy stuff, and we're like, there's no need to do that, you know. Think about what the risk is. If you are investigating drone strikes by the Americans in, in um, Afghanistan or Pakistan or something, then you're not going to use Google. But if you're pretty much anywhere else in the world and you want to have the, probably the most secure laptop you can buy, buy a Chromebook and do your work on that, you know. Um, if, you're, if you're working in Ireland as a crime journalist and you're touching on board issues of national security or, or otherwise, then you're probably going to want to take slightly different actions depending on who's it, who's, um, who you view as possibly trying to get access to your information. And also one of the things we want to be careful about as well when we talk about this is we try and call it information security because digital security is really only one part of that. We often focus as journalists and as freelancers on um, what about my phone, you know, uh, what about my laptop, what about my email, all these kind of things. Well, the other side to it is that I'd say 40% of the major information security threats that we've seen towards journalists and activists have been humans, you know. So that's either an insider or someone not very careful um, or the individual that, you know, the journalist involved, not being very careful about how they store that information. So it's, it's you know, it includes paper. You know, if you want to know what a celebrity's up to, go steal their rubbish. Do you know what I mean? That kind of stuff. It's very simple. And, and all of a sudden, you've just got around all these kind of complex encryption controls and 
piece of software and whatnot. Um, and to that, I think like, you know, we're obviously kind of only really touching on some subjects here, but some really interesting things to think about are, you know, the kind of case studies that you can look up online and, you know, if, even if you're only reading one article about it, this, it's been really well documented. So, for example, people talked about the Snowden effect as a, as a sort of uh, an example of how high-tech security and all this kind of stuff is. And really, for me, looking at it as a specialist, I think it's the opposite. I think it's a complete example of, of a journalist, particularly Glenn Greenwald, sort of saying, Oh, well, I'm not really bothered. That's what he did at the start of this. And, and the security shifted from him to the source. And that's always the worst sort of scenario for anybody involved. You know, a, a source comes to you, they expect and they think, um, and I've done, I've done many, many cases where sources have been killed or whatever because of journalists not particularly taking security very seriously. Um, you know, they come to you and they think, okay, well, how do I talk to you safely and securely? And now we have the benefit of, of, of tools like Signal and whatnot that make that job a lot easier. But where you can, I think, you know, having even a very basic understanding of, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to investigate this type of criminal, then we need to do this, you know, and having that written down. And also, I think, within organizations or even groups of freelancers, I would have worked with a lot of freelancers in, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. You know, one of the things that can, can be done quite easily is just like, okay, here's a few key things that you want to do to protect your information, share that, and then each individual is not creating a new way of doing it each time they have a new source and things like that. And one of the best things, of course, then is to avoid paranoia by saying, okay, why, what is the key information here? You know, the key information that I need to protect is this. I don't need to go crazy in my personal life. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. But take reasonable steps. Um, other ones that are available as well. So I think the reality winner case about uh, leaking of documents, I think, is really significant. Another example of, I suppose, the Intercept not doing a very good job of protecting information, where information was leaked to them, but because of the technologies that are behind in tracking and surveillance, particularly in documents and stuff like these days, um, it was tracked very, very easily to the individual involved. The simplest step here, it w it like to protect this individual, would have been s very, very simple. Literally, type up the document that you have. However, by printing the original document, you left surveillance tracking within the folders, and all of a sudden, that stuff that you, as a journalist, are trying to publish has just endangered somebody else. Um, and also, I think if you're looking at uh, you know, a great kind of Sunday read um, about journalist search security and safety and where we are kind of globally and stuff like that, I really do recommend looking at uh, the Ronan Farrell stories about Black Cube because this is something that we in, in kind of the sort of security um, media com community have been seeing for years and years, like 15 years, like of this happening with journalists and with activists and stuff like that, where basically corporate intelligence was targeting, was being used either by states that were kind of subcontracting or by organizations that were affected, you know, so, um, you know, big companies, for want of a better word, hiring people, in this case, it's, it's obviously Weinstein, um, to go into journalists to get that information from them, get it out. And there's a whole series of things in here which are also about, like, how, in, in these stories, like, how people, you know, other journalists were working for the private intelligence firms, how they were put under surveillance, how all these sorts of things. So it's not just about, like, the big picture kind of government stuff. It's also like Dublin, London, we've got examples here where, you know, corporate intelligence is literally trailing journalists to try and find out what they're going to write, what they're going to do. You know, it's not something that we can see ourselves removed from or just happens elsewhere. It's just that this is one of the few public examples that we can point to as a kind of learning uh, objective. Um, 
And that goes also a little bit further into, you know, what are the techniques that are happening here? It's not just about the use of surveillance and targeting of journalists. It's also about how do you disrupt the story? You know, the best, like, the, the easiest thing you can possibly do to disrupt the story, get in, get, get someone at the bar, pay a bit of money, whatever it's going to be, find out what they're going to say, and then publish that. And that's just happening all the time, and it's part of a wider problem of harassment for, for journalists as well, which needs to be considered um, as part of anybody's sort of uh, threat model with, um, for uh, communications and building a story. Um, how, do we do, how do we do this? Like, pretty simple, you know. Uh, red team, thinking like the bad guy, you know. I'm investigating corruption within the guards. Um, how high is this level of corruption? Uh, is this touching national security stuff? Is this, you know, is this something that, um, you know, that somebody within that may abuse their power? And we obviously have examples in this country of journalists being targeted. Um, in order to get that story out, what is the effect of that story if it does get out? You know, what is the effect? Uh, uh, all these sorts of things that you know really don't take an awful lot of time. But one of the thing, the challenges that we see is like if you don't do it at the start, implementing security after something has happened is a real problem. If you don't have that kind of like, how am I going to work on this story safely uh, uh, aspect to what you're doing? Then once you've sort of started communicating them via phone, you started sending emails, you started being in the same room with your mobile phone on as these other individuals, you're starting to kind of lose the ability to, to implement security over it. And also, to, especially for freelancers, more and more organizations, like we would have worked with a lot of kind of big streaming services and, and, and big media orgs over the years, are just saying, what's the risk to this? Uh, has the freelancer who we're trying to buy this from, this story from, have they done this and this? No, okay, we can't publish it, you know, or we're not going to take the risk on it. Um, also, some of the like most effective are some of the like again not technical things, but just common sense stuff. You know, um, obviously journalists are quite competitive, so there's a bit of compartmentalization that goes on. But you know, ensuring that um, you know we would have worked in, in a number of countries where journalists were arrested um, or, or 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 people in organisations were arrested covering certain topics, but because of basic sort of stuff that goes back to the Romans around, you know, compartmentalizing your information, only sharing certain things, you know, it protected the wider sort of organization um, from, from exposing the other things that they were kind of working on. And the key here is like making things a policy, right? The problem where this goes wrong is when you try to implement it for everything or people just do it willy-nilly and they're not sharing information sensibly by having kind of agreements in organizations or even amongst you know people that you're you know, colleagues and stuff look I'm not going to tell you everything that I'm working on until the later stage you're working with an editor I'm not gonna um, you know provide all the details about what my trip and travel routine is going to be until afterwards unless you need to know so these things are very basic but they, they work fairly effectively okay um, right Going to run through just some of the like the basic kind of technical things. Why are we talking about this? Well, because it's the low-hanging fruit that um, that continues to um, you know be the way that most people are targeted and infiltrated uh, in the digital sense. So um, big governments, big corporations, whatever. It's all the low-hanging fruit. You know, how do I spot like a phishing email? Which phishing being like the one of the most common ways for people to be targeted. Well, there's a million different, I can share some of these as well at a later stage, there's a lot of them in Umbrella. But, you know, looking for, okay, have they changed the links? Uh, does it look like it's something that, um, you know, should be sent to me? Um, you know, one thing I would say, for example, is if you are putting it yourself out as a freelancer uh, or, as a, or, or as a journalist working with an organization, is to be very cautious of and use some of the tools that are available to, you know, for, uh, to kind of scan documents as they come in and things like that. Ideally, if you're part of a bigger organization, obviously they should be doing that at, a kind of a, at an IT team level, but on your own, 
um, there are some great things out there that make it safe to open documents that people send you and stuff like that. Because it's so easy just to, you change a, you can, like a first year student, a computer science student can create a virus that's going to get onto your device and take your stuff. Um, things to be aware of, yeah, okay, so if you're using Gmail or things like that, then making sure that, you know, the things are attachments, business email compromise. So what we're seeing a lot with, uh, particularly in the media sector, is that as the uh, uh, kind of bad guy, for a better word, starts to um, know that journalists are more trained and they're not going to open this or that, what they do is they try to uh, elicit a bit more um, a bit more skillfully. So they're not going to just send you a document like we showed there. It says, please open whatever really important source stuff. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to create a conversation, try and build trust and stuff like that. And then they're going to get you open up and, and off it goes. Um, of the... Of the um, Security features in the entire um, IT sector that are the most important in the past 15 years, it's been two-factor authentication. So a lot of you probably get that for your banks. If you log into a bank and stuff like that, you get sent an SMS message. Well, you know, doing that for your, um, your, your Gmail, your uh, whatever services that you use, turning that on is probably the single most effective thing that you can do. Even with um, some um, you know, expensive you know corporate uh, penetration testing firms whose job is to, to get into companies. You know, they say, well, we'll probably get like a seventy percent opening rate. You know, um, if we just send stuff and you know we're going to get in. If you have the second factor turned on, which is only a few seconds more in your daily routine, it's like one percent chance they have of getting in. So it's a really huge increase in return for really just a couple of seconds in a day uh, to protect your information. Um, okay, so. And similarly, around um, you know tooling that's available. So um, where in the past this capability would have been for for uh, the preserve of governments, we see here examples. These are actual real life examples from a number of years ago of journalists who've been targeted in places like Mexico, where we're doing a lot of work. Where basically they're just getting sent a link. They click, open the link, and their phone is compromised. You know, and I think it's it can seem quite far away. Okay, oh, it's really far away. This kind of stuff, but this tooling is now being used by corporate intelligence as an example to target people in Ireland and, and the UK. There are people and journalists in this country who write stories that are definitely in the interest of uh, very significant surveillance powers, you know. So it, the ability to continue to do that requires a certain amount of, at the very least, driving up the costs, you know. Um, uh, like the low-hanging fruit. If we don't have our two, if we have our two-factor authentication turned on, we've made the job of hacking into our laptop. Like a computer science student from whatever who's done a year somewhere, um, all of a sudden we made it very expensive to get into our device. If we update our devices, if we update our, our iPhone, if we do this, and we do that. These few basic things, we've made the costs a lot harder. So what we want to do is, like any part of security, is just drive it onto somewhere else, make them move on somewhere else, make them try and come to us in a different way. Um, or, or just basically make them stop, I suppose. Um, yeah, so we all would have probably seen some of these before. Uh, definitely, um, if you take one thing away from it, make sure it's that. Okay, in terms of other tools then, so um, I think we've seen the Graham O'Dwyer ruling and uh, many other things that are out there. You know, Ireland is not a great place when it comes to surveillance law and transparency and things like that, and particularly where journalists or you know, the lines of national security and all get kind of got blurred. Um, certainly isn't at a standard compared to most you know European countries that are our peers so you know there's a lot of data retention in Ireland um, and one of the ways that if you are investigating things that you know you can add an extra layer of protection around certain stuff is the use of virtual private networks um, 
which uh, basically create a tunnel uh, somewhere so all of a sudden your traffic is not someone can see me connecting to Germany like at the, at the Irish internet provider but they can't see what I do then afterwards you know now obviously they are used sometimes by, by criminals and whatnot as well but th we're not talking about it in, that, in this context um, again making the job a lot harder and also one of the things that you do with a tool like this is that you also remove some of the uh, other risks in the chain so um, journalist conferences in a number of countries would have been targeted where someone came along with a fake Wi-Fi device, you connect to that fake Wi-Fi device, all of a sudden your traffic is being read and stuff like that. Um, so a small tool, um, one of the best ones that's out there is called um, Siphon3. Uh, if you're looking for a free one, you know I would, I would stay away from free ones in general, but there's one called Siphon3 that's built by the media, including um, it's funded by Deutsche Welle, BBC, and a few different places like that, and it's used by their staff, and it's really, really good for not just um, it being free and kind of like without monitoring and whatnot, but it also allows for, um, in certain restrictions in countries, it has a bit more power to, to break through the restrictions that might be there. Um, for, uh, just for like, I guess less for full-time media, because they're businesses, but if you are working with the likes of um, you know, charities or anything that has a kind of charitable type status. I don't know what the NUJ have it. Um, they might actually get kind of exemption. One thing that's really great is there's a lot of really good discounts for software and stuff that's out there. So, you know, um, like Microsoft Windows costs like $5 or something like that. It takes a bit of work, like you know, a bit of paperwork and stuff to get into. But I think it also educational discounts as well. Um, really useful for just being able to pretty much just install software that's up to date and things like that. Um, Passwords, um, I won't do a demo right now, but in order to break a password, it's really simple these days, like uh, 10 character password or whatnot. We all have more and more passwords, how do we manage them? And the secret to that is just a password manager. Basically just allows you to have one place to have all your passwords stored safely that you log into, and then from there, um, off you go. So you can, have a you can have a 100 character password for your Gmail, 100 for your whatever, your AIB. And then by having that then, a password manager, you only need to remember one strong one, and that does the rest of it. And Yes, there's always a problem around people saying, what if that gets hacked? Well, that's true, but the alternative is that you're not going to you know, remember in two or three years' time when computing power is doubled, you're not going to remember like a 25-character password. You're not going to remember then, another few years, a bit more. So it just kind of organizes things very well. And there, some of them are built into different sort of services and stuff as well. Um, for removing traces, uh, unless you're cautious about it um, and you want to really securely delete something, um, yeah, it's pretty easy to recover things. So one of the things that some of the tools that are available to to basically delete things securely. If you put something in your in your uh, your recycle bin or whatever it's called, you know it can be recovered really simply, uh, even if you delete it. So you know there are tools out there that are available. These some of these are free. Some of these are uh, open source or whatnot. Um, that basically just lets you uh, yeah delete stuff off your off your device. So if you're doing an investigation, if you think. Um, you know, you want to uh, remove, you know, a, a, like direct source evidence and move it into something else. Um, this is kind of is definitely the way to go because there's a lot of traces of things on your computers that get left as well when you're doing investigations. Um, encrypted email services become a lot easier recently um, to have. An, you know, you see some journalists and stuff are using these. Um, I do think, you know, separating the personal from the privates really, or, or from the kind of the, the work, you know, is, is really important when you're doing this kind of stuff. So. Um, having at least one account and, and ProtonMail would be a quite a good one because it, it allows you, it's pretty simple but it has encryption and stuff like that, they're pretty good on privacy um, um, and you know 
uh, giving you this kind of secondary place that people can send you stuff and separating that out. For some investigations, you know, we, we have found over the years like that, you know, if you're doing something really touching on sensitive subject matter, um, there might be times when you want to just have something completely separate. But what we found is that you, about two to three months is about the most you can continue to do that. So if you're investigating a case of, um, I don't know, guard of corruption into something, um, and you've always used this this work account or whatever, um, having a separate location uh, is really useful. But we, what you want to avoid doing is just cross-contamination. You know, you don't want to really be sending something from your work mail to this mail and stuff like that. And, and in-depth, going back to the threat modeling, in-depth security stuff uh, can only really last so long because we're human at the end of the day. So having something separate and then doing a lot of the work in there and then as the story is being written, you know, you kind of wipe it, delete it, get rid of it, whatever it is. And um, it means then if someone comes afterwards to try and find out how, what your sources were, then you're going to be, you're going to have a bit more kind of protection. Um, get asked a lot about encrypted voice recording as well. There, we don't really have one that we recommend. We haven't, you know, we tried to stick with tools that we understand really well. Um, so, um, yeah, you know, you're interviewing people, you want to have a password on it in case whatever. Uh, th th there are a couple like these out there. Was not, there's a couple that we're working with other teams in development on. Um, to, so journalists have this option, but there's nothing that's ideal at the moment. Um, so if you're working on certain things, like where you want to be able to use your Dropbox or your Gmail or your G Google Drive or whatever, Microsoft 365 or something, you want extra security, obviously, um, you know, it's uh, pretty easy for somebody, well, somebody in these companies can get access to your information if they choose to, but what you can do is get the benefits of these services with extra encryption, actual encryption, with some of these tools which are free, which basically encrypt it on your computer and then it sticks it up into the Dropbox. So if someone gets access to your Dropbox, they can't actually see what's in there. Um, and then going a bit further down the line, there's a lot of different other kind of tools as well that if you're doing kind of complex investigations, um, you can uh, very easily get someone to send you something um, with like disappearing links and things like that because that's often the challenge someone goes oh, I've got this video to send or you know uh, like here's this particular thing how are we going to make that work um, and collaboration as well so you know increasingly a lot of our work is with like kind of mixes of NGOs media um, freelancers and stuff like that where collaboration is really the problem and what you have is then one organization goes well we use 365 and then the other says well we do this and we do that so trying to get those kind of collaborative agreements and tools in place to allow you know especially larger investigations like the various anti-corruption ones that are happening at the moment so um, okay add to whistleblowing oh I don't know where it's gone so we would have worked with a lot of um, um, media organizations around whistleblowing so there's some really great tools out there that make that very easy I think the thing there you know you see the Guardian have it New York Times and whatnot we've worked with loads of different places on it but um, one of the challenges around it is people go well we have this piece of like this cool whistleblowing tool and um, just as a, as a as a you know FYI we really want to there's there's an option to do something like that they've done in Denmark or in the Netherlands and also in Mexico where organizations collaboratively have one platform and then if someone wants to leak information um, a whistleblower they can then basically go to this one place and then they can send it to all the orgs or, or to some or just to one or whatever so it's a really interesting model that I hopefully Ireland will, will look at but um, you know, one of the challenges around here is really just the handling of the information. The technology is really simple. You know, you stick this on this server, you do this thing, blah, blah, blah. It's once it gets to you, the process, who looks at it, how does that get passed around, how does the investigation happen? Um, that's really uh, important. Um, as to, you know, things like meetings and stuff like that, well, I've got a whole load on it, but, you know, I think the key thing um, is, uh, anyone here who's seen The Wire will know, you know, um, the importance or, or the amount of inf identifying information that a, uh, 
the phone has. So, you know, people talk about burner phones and stuff like that. Well, the key thing there is to change the phone and change the, the SIM card as well. Otherwise, you just appear the same in the network. The other part, though, is like, is like how long you can realistically implement that without someone knowing, you know? If you go to work with the, same, with the burner phone in your pocket and your other phone in your pocket, you know, I think in the States they say over about like 20 hours, they basically will make a match because it's the same travel. Everybody walks the same time, roughly the same route, when with the same phone in their pocket, you know? So, like, if you're getting to those levels of investigation, like, you are trying to make the job harder of those that you're trying to protect from, but if you're, you know, you might also want to have a wider plan about the kind of usage of these things, because you see all the time with some um, journalists, um, we don't do a huge amount here, we mostly do stuff abroad, but um, with some here where people are like, yeah, I have this burner phone, how long have you had it for? Three months. Okay, well, that's not, you know, okay. You are separating things, you're making the job harder of people who might try to look, and also you're making their ability to use that information more difficult, but they still might get at that information, it wouldn't be that, that hard. And, Things like burner phones and stuff, they stand out like a, like a sore thumb on a network these days because everybody knows. Um, to just things like incident response. So if you do find yourself in situations where you are um, of concern, you know, obviously our org, we're always here. You can kind of reach out to us. And we like to do a lot of stuff here in Ireland kind of gratis for people because it's like it's our home turf and we spend a lot of time abroad really in our career. But um, yeah, like, you know, uh, it, it's easy to be paranoid and a structured way of going through it, you know, like we often get people go, oh, like well, my laptop didn't turn on. Have I been hacked? Probably not. Probably just your cable's broken, you know, um, very simple stuff. Um, but there, you know, we do get real stuff in, you know, my phone's not working. Like some of the cases I showed earlier on around journalists uh, elsewhere that are publicly available information, we get that quite a lot where someone goes, phone's doing something weird. Um, someone sent me this link. Um, and this isn't, you know, stuff that is far away. It's stuff that that's close to home, and we can, you know, we or other people, other organisations are here, part of civil society, to kind of say, all right, well, we'll take a look at your phone, and then, you know, you do find stuff in there um, sometimes. So these sorts of things are not that far away, especially where it's just justifiable, you know. Um, so great tools just for kind of helping out yourselves. Um, Obviously, Umbrella is great. We kind of pitch that a lot. But Digital First Aid Kit's amazing. Um, there's a couple of different civil society orgs. Um, you know, obviously, on the journalist side as well, uh, Reporters Without Borders and Frontline Defenders as well. Um, really good people. Um, you know, that can kind of walk you through and say, okay, you know, what am I thinking here? What are the likely, what are the likely issues here and stuff like that. Um, okay, so kind of flew through a lot there. Oh, one I just want to talk about quickly is um, just before I stop. So. It's a bit much, but if you're working with sources, one of the things I think is really important is like keep it super simple and have le levels, you know? Like I've seen journalists just go over the top with trying to work with a source or let the source dictate certain things, you know, too much. And there's a balance there between building confidence and also protecting them, protecting yourself, protecting information. But, you know, trying to make use, it's better to use a, a tool that's very usable, like Signal or like ProtonMail, um, and use that consistently than it is to try and do more complicated things. But the one thing I would say is if you are working with sources like this uh, at a distance with technology, um, is make sure you build a process to communicate with them if they haven't done it before. You know, So if you're asking someone to shift to a more secure method, having a Google Calendar reminder, message them this week, message them next week, because if they don't, then that collapses and then you end up going back to somewhere else. So trying to build in those kind of processes to bed in, especially if you're dealing with people who are busy or people who are really concerned or whatever, who are likely to make more mistakes is really useful. Um, anything more than 15 minutes and it's not gonna, it's not really gonna fly. Um, okay. Sorry, quite a lot of stuff there, and I know I can run over time by 10 minutes, so any kind of questions then around very big flow through some security stuff there. Can we get access to your slides later?
Uh, yeah, I can send stuff over. Yeah, yeah. The best place for it though is uh, definitely Umbrella itself, um, because that's a structured. Um, it's designed as a training tool, so th it's designed that you can do a five-day training or a thirty-minute training, and then you can have it then kind of on your phone. If, so. if you want to send stuff to me, links or whatever, yeah. I'll broadcast it out to everyone yeah. afterwards. Yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Rory, I see you're using a Macintosh. Yeah. Uh, is that in itself a security measure? Um. So, uh, people will often say, is a Mac more secure than a Windows device? The answer is, it's only as secure really as the individual. The reason why Macs used to be considered more secure is because no one used to use them. So no one used to create malware for them, you know, <laughs> just, just hipsters. So, yeah, like, um, you know, like, there's no laptop that's really more secure than the other, probably with the exception of a Chromebook, because they're very hard to break into. And people don't make malware for them. But then, of course, you're using Google services and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's important not to be paranoid here. Like, Google doesn't care what you're doing uh, unless you're doing certain things involving certain countries. But, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I have mine quite locked down because of the nature of the job and stuff. But even I don't, you know, I don't go crazy about it. I just have a normal Android phone, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it's, it's about as secure, you know, having antivirus, having, you know, like a firewall or whatever. Turning encryption on your computer really important. Like there's, I don't think we mentioned it there, but a thing called BitLocker in Windows, um, a thing called FileVault in um, in Mac, both of which are, uh, you know, I think they're part built into it. You just turn that on and encrypt your device. And what that means is, if your laptop, and this is data protection is just as important as anything else, if your laptop gets stolen on the street or in the pub, um, you know, I can pull out the hard drive and access it. But if you've turned on that one little thing that takes like three hours overnight and it doesn't change your computer speed, then you can just go, well, someone nicked my laptop, but they don't have access to all my information there. I was hacked a few years ago. They got me my Gmail account. Yep. And then they locked me out, changed my password, changed my security questions, yep. changed my two-step things I couldn't access it. Went yep. to Facebook, tried to warn people, because it was one of these things where they're asking people to send me money in Cyprus because my purse had been stolen and so on. Were you in Cyprus? No, of course <laughs> not. Yeah. Of course not. I've yeah. never been to Cyprus. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, I found two of my friends who'd sent money. Yeah. One of them was able to get it back, the other wasn't. Yep. And um, I felt a bit guilty about that. Should I reimburse them? You know? mm -hmm. But um, the thing is, they did a very weird thing to my account. Like I went through and I, and I got it all back, sorted it all out, reinstituted new everything. Yep. And um, they had, what they had done is, like in my address book, every address I had, they'd added an S to the name. Mm -hmm. So if the name was David, it now became David's. And of okay. it didn't work. Why would they do that? Uh, probably to not make some. Kind of, they probably were trying to email them, and they didn't want to make some sort of alerting. I think um, it's unusual that they've got through all those layers, but um, that would be another kind of problem that happens a lot in certain countries, in particular, where a journalist gets hacked, like yourself, and then all of a sudden, what happens is you're then messaging other people because I don't necessarily trust a randomer, but I trust you to message me. You know, so that's again a lot of that is just around having the basic stuff in place to make it harder and then on the other side of it just being kind of cautious you know more than anything else that was great Thank you. this has been a freelance forum podcast the forum is brought to you by the dublin freelance branch of the national union of journalists and made possible by network funding from the broadcasting authority of ireland sector learning and development program Music from podsummit.com released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. I'm Jared Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe. <laughs>